Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. May 18 is the anniversary of the Tamil genocide and the defeat of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. This year, 2019, marks 10 years. On today's program, we look at the situation for Tamils in Sri Lanka. My first guest today is Nalanthi Kanapathapillai, a Tamil activist based here in Melbourne, Victoria. She starts off by introducing herself and how she came to be an activist. My name's Nalanthi Kanapathapillai. I'm currently working as a GP in rural Victoria. I'm a Tamil Australian um, and I've uh, our family migrated. Um, parents came as refugees because of the, the conflict of Sri Lanka and um, yeah I've sort of recently become actively involved with the, the Tamil plight I guess um, after having travelled back specifically I think for about four weeks at the beginning of this year to to, to find out directly for myself what the what the situation was like in Sri Lanka. So this year, yeah. this month, we are commemorating 10 years since yeah. uh, the very particular period of the Tamil genocide. Of course, the struggle itself and periods of mass killing predated the 2009 war, but specifically that period of time. What can you tell us by way of remembering what happened in Sri Lanka? There was, it was, there was a strong premeditated contention from then President uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa, who had a single-handed um, mission to wipe out not only the resistance for the Tamil people, which was the LTTE, but actually hundreds and thousands of civilians, Tamils, so he ordered UN forces, um, US expats from international aid groups like Amnesty International. All of these were ordered out of the northeastern sort of strip of um, Sri Lanka. And following that, so there was absolutely no witness. Um, the Sri Lankan government and army proceeded to shell indiscriminately in drones a government-declared safe zone that was about a 100k strip on the northeastern uh, coast of, um, of Sri Lanka. And this targeted, you know, homes. And this wasn't just from the air. This was on land as well. There were raids in, in civilian homes, predominantly civilian homes, and um, numerous arrests assassinations, executions of, you know, prisoners of war, and this is the LTTE, the Tamil, the, the Tamil resistance. Um, they shelled hospitals, they shelled safe zones, they shelled, you know, everything that was declared as a government-protected area. So numerous war crimes. And this escalated in the last couple of months where it was just open, flat-out slaughter. And I got hundreds of stories from civilians, you know, whose families I visited in Sri Lanka and spoke to them about it and even years before or years after, indiscriminately walking into people's homes, stealing their, um, you know, stealing their produce, um, shooting, raping, pillaging. And this is why there was the initial resistance set up. But 
the, the, the 10-year anniversary specifically marks the escalation of a very unilateral war against the Tamil people, civilian and military. And it was just a bloodbath, essentially, and, and specifically constructed to have no witness. But there were. There was mobile phone footage. There was word of mouth. And we have, we have ongoing sto- stories still from survivors and from you know, soldiers. How? So that, that's what happened. How is it that the Tamil population became oppressed in Sri Lanka? Where does the Sinhalese chauvinism, where does the anti-Tamil sentiment come from? Yeah, it's really deeply ingrained, actually. It's quite frightening, and it's, it's well before the initial beginning of the war. It, was, it goes all the way back to colonialism, you know, since the Brits um, were occupying, you know, what was then called Ceylon for the years, and um, after they departed... I mean, the, the Singhala are the, numerically the majority, but they form about 70% of the population. The Tamils are about... 10%. Um, and so they wanted their own small strip of land just to call their own, to just have some some solidarity, I guess. Um, there's, a, there's a deeply ingrained um, sense of superiority, and this is taught in schools where, you know, initially Tamil wasn't taught. Um, and in their poems, in their literature, they're taught to revere themselves as a superior race. And after the Brits left in um, the 1948, I think it was, or the early 50s, they handed the reins of power to... They felt they needed to do that. I'm not sure why, but they did. They handed it over to the single majority. And from then, there's been sort of more obvious oppression where Tamils really were treated as second-class citizens. That actually, even in my mother's generation, she describes having to have reach higher marks in um, university to do certain degrees. That, that, that was clear. They didn't even teach Tamil uh, in schools back then. So the discrimination was more marked, and that's one of the, the reasons the, sort of the, the resistance was formed. So 2010, also actually uh, yesterday, the 18th of May, um, mm. marks the... I guess, the final defeat of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. What, what do you say about that? What actually happened in... How do you mark a defeat in a single day like that? It's, it kind of culminates. I think we need one day to actually say to the world, this is, this is, this is the day that we need to remember that this was a massacre. And it's actually marked in the Sinhalese calendar as a day of celebration. And they celebrate this day as a day of victory, of, you know, annihilation of rebel forces. And if you pull out the Tamil flag now, you'll get absolute vitriol and hatred. I remember turning up to um, one of the vigils after the, the recent Easter Sunday bombings, and this was organised by the, by the Sinhala government, and if you'll note, 90% of the churchgoers were Tamil Catholics, uh, not Sinhala Catholics. 90% of the attendees at this vigil in Fed Square were Sinhalese. We stood there with our Tamil Tiger flags and we had absolute hatred spewed at us. And I think I got more hatred there than I did at the Nazi rally in St Kilda. But, yeah, so it's looked at in very different ways. There was no isolated date because the massacres and the torture of Tamils have gone on for decades. And this is 
one day of, you know, a hundred thousand. So the camel. Was the defeat of the Tamil Tigers actually effective? Is there a Tamil resistance now? It's growing now. Um, the numbers numerically were defeated, and because the Sri Lanka had a lot of um, the Sri Lankan government had a lot of superpower allies, and so they were sort of aided and abetted in this. Um, and there was, it was really was a war without witness, and they still haven't been tried for war crimes. So they've escaped liability, and and this is a decade later. And is it re-emerging? Yeah, that's a question. Um, Tamil nationalism is rising again. There's absolute fury at lack of being heard. Um, only recently, having had Europe take the Tamil Tigers off the, you know, the terrorist list um, has helped somewhat. Um, there still needs to be a formal trial with the Sri Lankan government needs to be tried formally in a court of law, like, say, the International Criminal Court, where, you know, a lot of the previous generals that were involved in this are now occupying parliamentary positions and positions of, you know, power. They need to be tried for war crimes, and they're numerous you know, um, politicians there that are guilty of war crimes, and they haven't. Um, UN charged the Sri Lankan government with um, crimes against humanity, like bombing a hospital, bombing government-enforced safe zones. These are all war crimes, so very easy to actually put that charge on them. But the, the, the Sri Lankan government has evaded, evaded being tried. UN forces that went into Sri Lanka to try and investigate in 2011 weren't allowed. They were vetoed at the, the country's sort of southeastern tip by sort of Chinese naval bases and they weren't allowed to do any kind of investigation. So still, Sri Lanka has evaded either any kind of liability or even being tried for just innumerable war crimes. And the, the longer you leave it, the less and less evidence there is, you know, sort of relatives die off, um, that kind of thing. You said earlier that um, earlier this year you visited Sri Lanka partly to see for yourself um, the impact of the genocide and presumably also to start to notice some of this re-emerging Tamil resistance. Tell us about your trip. Um, It was really eye-opening. The reason I went mainly was to meet the mothers. There have been a group of... um, grieving widows and mothers who've been protesting daily for over 700 days now um, for questions as to the whereabouts of, you know, this is about hundreds of thousands of sons or, or, or fathers or spouses that have gone missing and the government is claiming no accountability for. Um, so that was the main reason I wanted to go because I met a few of them at the UN when... Um, I went and I was really moved. It was very powerful hearing them speak because they got very emotional. And then I actually went and saw them and I went to a few of the protests and I sat by them and just this outpouring of grief was too much. I had to, I had to walk away just to get my breath. And then, I mean, that was just seeing it for five minutes. If I had to live it, it would be, it would be a very different thing. Um, and I wanted to see what were the main issues that were going on in Sri Lanka. Is there still ongoing sort of muddling of, of journalists? And there, there is. Um, there was this 
uh, I think the Australian Senator Lee Rhiannon was writing about, you know, newspaper outlets that had bullet holes still, you know, the walls. Um, and the main issues now are the after the UN had declared that they changed their government po- uh, policy, they're, they're trying to introduce something called the Counter-Terrorism Act. Their current legislation is um, called the Prevention of Terrorism Act, which is a farce because it basically uses their laws. They've enforced a set of laws to stop journalists and whistleblowing about what actually goes on. Um, so that's a big issue there, sort of muzzling of free speech. And um, so that's with this whole attempt to introduce something that's just a, a farce, something calling itself the Counterterrorism Act, which is actually a lot more tight. You you can get significant jail time if you speak against the government. So it's, it's turning into a real sort of Nazi state. Uh, the other issue is like the military occupation of land. Um, Tamil farmers, Tamil-owned property have been occupied by military for decades. And now not just military, but, you know, singular civilians. And Tamils have been forced out of their houses. And that was one issue that I didn't know much about, but that was definitely there. Um, the missing persons is a huge issue. There's tens of thousands of civilians that are missing that the government is not claiming any responsibility for. You know, the estimated death toll at that war alone was something like 70,000, but people, true guesstimates, would say it's something more like 140,000. So, And did, yeah. you, did you, I I mean, I know what you said about the memorial that was held at Federation Square and the interaction or the reaction from the Sinhalese Sri Lankans mm. at that event. When you mm. were in Sri Lanka and in any of your um, discussions with comrades there, do you know if there are any pieces of Sinhalese Tamil solidarity, any parts of the Sinhalese community, particularly the progressive parts that are forming alliances and joining in struggle against what is effectively a common enemy. The government of Sri Lanka is no friend of the working class Sinhalese either. No, no. You're right. There's um there's a lot of Sinhalese supporters there and I'm I was shocked, to be honest. There's a journalist there by the name of Rookie Fernando. He was Sinhalese, um, and he spoke at several of our events. Um, there's a few scattered um, Sinhalese, uh, uh, what do you call them, activists in Melbourne, and I'm always really wary. I'm like, what? what is your motivation here? You know, why are you going your own against your own countrymen? But... They're really genuine. Like, the, always I get that sort of wall up when I meet somebody who is Sinhalese, who is going out of his way, because they do get ostracised from their own community. There's a, there's a lot of them. I'm surprised, but there's... I mean, it's great. It is. It, in your stories of genocide, in your stories of the discrimination and oppression of the Tamils, it does bring to mind the similarities with our comrades in Palestine. Yes. But also our comrades from long ago, or not that long ago, in Germany. Uh, And even then we knew that there were uh, German comrades that harboured the Jews that were being targeted at that time because like some of the Sinhalese that you speak of, there is at some level a recognition that the common enemy is fascism. Yes. 
what about those solidarity links? Do you know if they are being built uh, across the the international um, communities with in relation to oppressed and genocidal governments? They are. Um, the European camel movement is um, very progressive. There is a tendency for hardcore Tamils to stick only with the Tamil community and nothing else, but... Um, Geneva, there was, um, we had Palestinian activists speak on our panel. I mean, we're all oppressed people, and then there needs to be solidarity with them. Um, we had Kurd speak um, on our panel. Um, we had from Western Sahara. Those were the three ones that I remember. The recent, um, the recent Easter Sunday bombings, you know, um, that... It took that 290 Tamil deaths predominantly and, you know, a couple of Western deaths, to be honest, and that would have given it a lot more media. And in high-profile sites and the fact that it was Catholics, um, it's a shame that it took that for the Tamil issue to become, you know, to get some of the media that it deserves worldwide. One of the bonuses, it's created a lot of solidarity between, I think, a lot of the activist communities within Melbourne and other oppressed groups. We had non-Tamil Muslims coming and standing with us when we did our vigils. Um, so in terms of that, that's been great. There's a real fear that there could be divisions created, not by the Tamil community, but within the government and singular community to try and divide Tamil Muslims and Tamil Catholics and, you know, Tamil Hindus. Um, and there's there's a real push for that. I can see that happening in Sri Lanka. They've already gone to arrest, like, many, many Tamil Muslims. And I think it's really important that us and Tamil Muslims fought side by side for democracy with Tamil Hindus. So they're all the same to me. And there's I'm, I'm worried that... Um, there'll be distension amongst us. But I'm, I'm happy to see that most Tamils that I speak to are really calling for unity between the three groups, you know, not to let this divide us. So I think that's a really important point. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. That was Nalanthi Kanapatha Pillai speaking about the anniversary of the Tamil genocide. Rights activists and journalists have condemned the Sri Lankan government's Prevention of Terrorism Act, the PTA, and a planned Counter-Terrorism Act, the CTA. They claim that all terror laws are generally used against journalists, rights activists, union leaders and opposition politicians as tools of repression. Under the PTA, hundreds of Tamils have remained in jail without trial since 2009 when the military defeated the Tamil rebels in the 26-year civil war. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, Tilak Marapana, presented the CTA draft bill to Parliament in 2018. The CTA is meant to be a replacement and improvement of the PTA, which was enacted in 1978. The CTA will go before Parliament soon. Shivani Jegaraja, she's a human rights activist and barrister, briefly analyses the Counter-Terrorism Act in Sri Lanka and its consequences for Tamils. 
the CTA widens the scope of the PTA. You can have human rights as long as you are not saying, I want a separate state. As long as you're not saying, where are my family members? Because they were last with you and now they know where to be seen. You can have human rights if you're not saying, I want the, the, the people who killed 100,000 Tamils, annihilated a complete race of people to be prosecuted. So everyone can have human rights in Sri Lanka as long as you don't ask those questions. Prohibition and restriction orders. You can make an order pro prohibiting movement outside the place of residence, house arrest, travel overseas, travel within Sri Lanka, communication association with people specified in the order, engaging in certain specified activities that may facilitate the commission of an arrest. And I've talked before about curfew. There is also a new passage called prohibited places. And my feeling is this is to do with land grabbing. So the, the police, in order to protect the national security, prevention of terrorism, and all the rest of it, all the vague stuff, um, they, can pro they can declare a place a prohibited place. Now, what that does, if you declare a place a pro prohibited place, um, you can't go in it. And that would mean, again, technically, if, if, let's say, the army had a tranche of land in the north of the northeast, let's say, Vavunia, and they say, this is a prohibited place because, you know, we're, we're letting the army families live on it and we're going to put a stupa there, um, it would actually be an offence under the Counter-Terrorism Act uh, to try and get in it. So... Uh, sorry, the last thing I should say is confidential information. I, I think that this passage, these passages are to do with attempts by uh, various agencies to uh, have uh, alleged war criminals arrested when they leave Sri Lanka. So um, any information you can prohibit, uh, what's classed to be conf confidential information is any information which may have an adverse impact on the security and defences of Sri Lanka, any information not in the public domain which ha may have an adverse effect on national public security, uh, that relates to the police or armed forces, any particular person, any information not in the public domain relating to a prohibited place, i.e. land grabs, or an approved place of de detention. So what that means is, if the government of Sri Lanka declare a particular, uh, let's say, Joseph camp to be a, a prohibited place, or a particular person to be um, uh, subject to confidentiality, confidentiality issues, if you try and get information about it, then that itself is a potentially it's a criminal offence. Now, where's that going to leave us if we're talking about um, investigations, war crime investigations. Where's that going to leave us in terms of confidential information? Because, you know, we want to have, we want, we don't even have a full list of those who were arrested and who were interned and who were uh, processed through the Surundi camps. So, you know, speaking as someone who has done uh, Sri Lankan refugee law for nearly 25 years and has seen every single aspect of this war and the ceasefire uh, and knows the PTA and the emergency regulations uh, very well. I see this and I, I say everyone should read it and everyone should be circumspect and everyone should try and work out what is the intention here. And um, Because uh, I, I conclude by saying 
that this is a total smack in the face to activists and to those who are seeking justice and really want accountability in Sri Lanka. It's saying, yes, we're going to get rid of the PTA. You didn't say that we shouldn't have something else. You didn't say that we couldn't have another counter-terrorism measure that just lets us do what we need to do now. That was human rights activist and barrister Shivani Jigaraja discussing the draft Counter-Terrorism Act in Sri Lanka and its consequences for Tamils in Sri Lanka. And before her, Nalanthi Kanapathapillai speaking about the anniversary of the Tamil genocide. And that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.